Hey, so we're in the, right in the middle of a five-week series that I've called Infused. I, I usually do a four or five-week series every December leading up to Christmas and in the Christmas season. And I like this word infused. And I've told you last couple of weeks, one of the reasons I really like it is the word infused is often followed by the word with or the word into. Infused is about invitation. It's about injecting something. And, and it's a season where we celebrate that like, Jesus was in, injected into this world. Um, Every time I stand up here and a prayer I often have over this church is a prayer from Ephesians 4 that I I believe church leaders, ministers, pastors have been called by God to help equip the church. And in doing this, I don't think the role of church leaders is to tell people what to think about every issue in the world. I think the goal of church leaders and the church is to help people think about the gospel in all things, which means we may not land on the same page on everything. But to help think about the gospel and to think about Jesus when it comes to all things. And that when we do that, the powers of the water of baptism and the bread and the cup is strong enough to hold us all together through it all. Uh, last week I had a friend come in, David Frace, because I wanted him to come and speak. He's an expert on, on what it means to pour into the next generation because there's always going to be a next generation. And this morning I have a friend, Caleb Coltenbach, who is here, lives out on the West Coast. Caleb and I have been friends for a few years. I don't even remember how we became friends. Maybe it was through books, through connections, but Caleb's become a really good friend of mine. Caleb became a Christian in the independent Christian churches, so basically the cousins of Churches of Christ. We share the same history. It's basically Churches of Christ with instruments and maybe a couple of other things we do differently, but they're first cousins. We claim them as family. Uh, And Caleb has served as a pastor in a few different churches. Uh, Shepherd of the Hills is a church out in L.A. that Jim Berryman, one of our elders, was an elder there a couple of decades ago before Jim Berryman moved here to Memphis. Uh, Caleb is also an author. He wrote the book called Messy Grace, which every single one of you need to read. He wrote a book that came out a couple of years ago called God of Tomorrow, and you need to read that one because he quotes me in it. You need to check that out. (laughs) And he has another book coming out next summer called Messy Truth. Uh, Caleb is a church consultant. He, He works with churches and nonprofits and just helping them navigate what it means to be faithful people and what it means to be the church in a world that it's really hard to navigate faith sometimes. And he steps into a lot of churches and nonprofits to help them do this. Uh, Caleb, I'm thrilled to have you here, and I really love your heart for the local church and how you want to help people love God and love people. I count you as a great friend. It's an honor to have you in Memphis. So Sycamore View, will you welcome my friend Caleb to the stage today? Hey, everyone. We doing, am I on here? Good. We doing well today? We're going to do that again. Um, And I'm going to tell you why we're going to do it again, because we just got done singing some amazing songs, taking communion, okay? None of us live in West Virginia. We're in church this morning. How are we doing today? Good? All right. All right. That's a little bit better. I'm doing well today. I just want to make sure that everybody's on the same side here of who's going to win today in uh, football. (laughs) Chiefs, my home state. I just said this was a church. <laughs> I was expecting people to come forward and give their lives to Christ all over again when they saw the arrowhead here. Anyway, I'm glad to be with you guys. And I do remember the first time we met. I think it was at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. I think Rich, Rick actually introduced us. Um, but I love this guy right here. Uh, Josh has really meant a lot to me. Um, within ministry, it's interesting. If you've never served in full-time ministry, you may not understand this. If you do, you will understand this. That some of the times, some of your, uh, the people that you really lean into during tough seasons are usually states away. And he's one of those people. And I'm thankful for him and his family. Uh, his wife is a Star Wars fan, and that should rub off on him more. I don't understand why it hasn't. Um, the new Star Wars movie is coming out, which I can't wait for. Um, you know, after the last catastrophe called Last Jedi. Hopefully this one is 10 times better. Uh, But anyway, I'm glad to be here with you guys today. I, like Josh said, I live in California. My wife is a a therapist, a Christian counselor. 
we have two kids. We have a seventh grader named Joel and a fifth grader named Rachel. We live in the Los Angeles area because we like not having money. And we love, <laughs> we love giving that to the, to the government over and over again. We love not having water. But uh, my wife is from there, so I figure I'm, I'm stuck for a while at least, right? Um, but I remember when my wife and I first got married, we tried so hard to have kids. And no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't have kids. We tried and we tried and we tried. And, and no matter what we did, it just wouldn't happen. And we both kind of slipped into a depression. Um, I, I was destructive in my version of the depression. I threw myself into my work which is not healthy. My wife was even more destructive. She started watching Hugh Grant movies over and over again in Twilight and chick flicks. And I just said, ain't nobody got time for this, okay? We're going to get you pregnant one way or another. So we went to this fertility clinic. We got pregnant on our very first try with Joel and on our second try with Rachel. Okay, and I love them both, but I got to tell you about Joel's birth because it was the first. When we found out we were pregnant, we couldn't stand it. We were the annoying couple that you would not want to invite over to your house because we would monopolize conversations and we would talk about our pregnancy and our birth and so on and so forth. And we lost friends and we didn't care. We'd get new ones because we were pregnant. And I could not wait to get to the hospital because I knew what to expect. I had seen the movies, you know. I knew that when my son appeared, there'd be this shining light from heaven, this underscoring epic John Williams music. He'd come out pristine clean, making these cute cooing baby noises. We'd make eye contact. He would grab my finger, and with perfect pronunciation, he would say the word father. <laughs> that did not happen. We got to the hospital, and everything was going great until the pain hit my wife. And then she became somebody that I had not exchanged vows with. <laughs> I put my hand on her shoulder and tried to comfort her. And she said, don't you dare touch me right now. And I said, okay, Linda Blair, Emily Rose, whatever your name is. We need a, an old priest and a young priest. And then the doctor came in and gave her drugs. And she went back to loving God and others at that point. And when it was time for my son to come into the world, the doctor and the nurses come in in what looked like hazmat outfits and welding masks, and they spread plastic all over. And I'm thinking, what's going to explode? Because I'm the only one not covered. And when my son came into the world, my expression went from this to, oh. <laughs> so he got to put him back in. He's got to cook some more. He, he came out, and he was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. <laughs> he had gunk on him I had never seen. I never knew that the human head could be uh, ovalish and squarish and rectangularish and triangularish and trapezoidish all at the same time. <laughs> he did not make cute cooing baby noises. I had never heard these noises before. They wrapped him up in a white blanket, and they gave him to me. And if you get to know me, you'll find out real quick that I don't always have a filter. And this was one of those times because they said, what do you think? And I looked at him and my first words about my son were, he looks like a turtle. <laughs> and when my daughter was born, she looked like this big red juicy ladybug. And something happened in that moment when I was holding my turtle and my ladybug. <laughs> In that moment, it was messy, and there were smells and sights. Don't want to see again. But in that moment, I just loved my son, and I loved my daughter, and I knew that there is nothing that my kids could ever do to get me to love them less. And believe me, my children have done things to me already, okay? They, they uh, have gotten me sick, okay? They brought home the stomach flu and colds from school. They've taken my money. Before children, I used to look like Zac Efron, but then I had children, and this happened right here. But it doesn't matter how messy they are, because I love my kids. And I want you to know this right now. Some of you know this, some of you have known this, but you've forgotten, and some of you need to be reminded, it's this, that God loves messy people. That is how he feels about every single one of you. Here's what we like to do to each other. Christians and non-Christians, we like to throw labels on each other, categorize each other, and, and define one another by 
the messes that we see in each other's lives. Things like you can't hold a job, you have no relationship with your family, you're on how many divorces now or marriages, you have how many kids right now, you don't make good decisions, you've moved how many times, you can't get this job, you can't get in this school, you can't, you can't, you voted for this person, you're part of this political party, you, you, you. And, and when you get into a relationship with Jesus, what's so cool is that he looks past the false definitions that lie, he takes us out of the categories, rips off the labels, and he says, that's my child. No matter how messy you are, I am for you. Now, I love that. I love the fact that God loves messy people who are messy like me. I just don't understand how God can love people who are messy in other ways. Can you feel me? Okay, you know some of these people. Okay, don't act all Christianly. Come on, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow morning, or you're going to go to school, and you see that one person walking down the hallway, and you're like, good night, and you just turn around. You're going to take the long way around to where you were going. You get caught in a conversation with that person, there's no chewing your leg out of that bear trap, you are stuck. (laughs) Okay, you see these people at Starbucks, you see these people in your gym, you see these people wherever you go, and for some of you, you are going to have to hang out with them next week because you share DNA. (laughs) A little rumbling. I can't laugh that much because they're right beside me. (laughs) Right? I want to meet the person up in heaven, if if they are in heaven, I have my doubts, who decided that Christmas and Thanksgiving should be so close together. We should have spaced those two holidays out a little bit right? Because some of the messiest people around are people that you're related to or people you live with. Ever get in a fight on the way to church? That's a lot of fun. (laughs) Some of you are not laughing because you're like, yeah, that was this morning. (laughs) How do you love messy people that are different from you? How do you love the people that voted for the other candidate? Yeah, now it got quiet. How do you love people who are on the other side of the railroad tracks in your mind? How do you love people who have a different system of ethics that you do, who have a different moral compass, who go to that church, who belong to that denomination over there? How do you love people who are messy in different ways than you are? You see, this Christmas, as as we go through this uh, series that that Josh started, this, this infused series, we're talking about Jesus bringing light into our dark world. I think that Jesus came to bring light But here's the deal. I think Jesus came to ruin your life too. Or let me rephrase that. He came to ruin your own perception of what your life should be. And he said, I'm not worried about you being happy. I'm worried about you being joyful. I'm worried about you rolling up your sleeves and getting messy in a messy world. This Christmas, I don't want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I want to wish you a messy Christmas. Because this Christmas, I hope that you and I can learn how to love people that are not like us, especially going into a presidential election year next year, and I'm dead serious. We have got to learn to respect and love one another no matter what. Following Jesus requires nothing less, and if you think otherwise, I don't know who you're following, it's not Jesus. And so to do this, we're going to look at, a, at somebody in the Christmas story that is very unique. As a matter of fact, in, in some like children's books about the Christmas story, like you'd find in Barnes & Noble or a bookstore or something like that, you'd order off Amazon, you probably might half the time or less than half the time find this person actually in that, uh, in, in that book. But you, you probably won't ever find an ornament based off this person. There are lots of people in the Christmas story you won't ever find an ornament of. Like John the Baptist is in there. You won't ever find a John the Baptist ornament, though I don't know that you'd want one either. They'd look kind of weird, right? Just be honest. Come on, I'm not talking bad about him, but the dude was weird. Dressed in camel hair down by the river. I don't know that's going to pretty up your Christmas tree. And this guy that we're talking about today, his name is Simeon. And he plays a very, very unique role. And and through this passage that we're about ready to take a look at, in the third book of the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, you can turn there. If not, I'm going to read the verses to you, and we're going to have the verses on the screen in just a moment. But 
through this passage, I think that we're going to learn a principle, and if you really embrace this principle, you can actually begin to love people who are not like you, even today, even when you walk out of this room, even right after the service. You can begin to put this principle into action, and you can begin to have a very messy Christmas. Okay, so in Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 22. I'm going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to stop and explain them. So Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, it says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Let's stop right there. Let me kind of set the context for you, okay? Mary and Joseph are, are devout followers of God. We see that because they are keeping in line with the law. They are trying to be righteous as they knew best back in those days. And they are taking Jesus and Mary to be purified in the temple. Now, what's that all about? Well, at, at this point, when they reached the temple, Jesus was born 40 days ago. And, and it was custom back then that the child and the mom would have to be made clean after 40 days. Circumcised on the eighth day, and then after that, you know, like some 32 days later, they go to the temple, and then both the mom and the child are purified by offering a sacrifice. Why? Because during that time, during those 40 days, the mom and the son or the daughter were unclean because blood was everywhere. And, and back in the, you, if you know your Old Testament history, great. If you don't, that's okay because I'm going to explain it to you. Back in the Old Testament, if you were unclean, if you had touched blood, uh, th there were diseases that were passed you were unclean. You usually had to go outside the city limits for a certain amount of time. And here, God said, you have to go to the temple. You have to purify yourself. You have to purify the child that you just had. In a sense, think about it like this. For 40 days, the mom was carrying shame. Now, some of you don't like that. Some of you are like, Caleb, that, that's rather rude. But, but check this out. It's really a picture of the gospel if you think about it. Jesus bore our shame on the cross to give us new birth. And right here, Mary bore shame as attributed to her in order to be a mom. Moms back then bore shame in order to give new birth to have their child, and it was worth it. This is really a living picture of the gospel in a sense. It's foreshadowing what Jesus would do for his own mom later on, and for every single person that's ever lived or would ever live on the earth. And so they get to the temple, okay? It says in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, now Simeon, he's an old dude, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What did that mean? He's waiting for the redemption. And back in, in, in Jesus' day, they thought that when the Messiah, when the Christ would come, that this individual would be a militant, conquering Messiah that would come and would end the Roman occupation, would drive out the Romans from the land, that this individual would reign in the temple, and that Judaism would be the main religion of the world, and that people would look to Israel and so on and so forth. And they were waiting for this military, militant Messiah. And little did they know that infused in this baby that Mary and Joseph brought to the temple was the most powerful being in the universe. Was the one who had written the law, was the one who had spoken everything into existence, was the one who was bringing light into the world. Little did they know that. Little did they know that the first time the Messiah came, it would be in humility and peace. And if you want to know about the second coming, go read Revelation. That, that's trippy, by the way, if you haven't read it. Because that describes, especially, especially chapter 19 and, and beyond, really talks about 
what it looks like when the Lord comes. And it's not in peace at that point. It's to bring peace in a forceful way, the redemption of the world. But right now, it's through peace, and so many people miss it. But here's, here's what happens next, and this is kind of, to me it's humorous. It may not be humorous to you, but it's humorous to me, and I'll tell you why in a second, okay? Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms. Now let's just stop right there. Simeon took him in his arms. Listen, if if this is your first time reading this chapter, it's a little creepy. Okay, If, if, if it's not, it's probably because you've read this a million times or you've been a Christian since God was a boy. That's how long. Imagine showing up to church here. You, like, rarely come, and you have your newborn child. First time you brought the newborn child to church, and here's this, like, 95-year-old guy over here, and he sees you with the child, and he goes, oh, give me the baby. Oh, give me the baby over here. Let me hold the baby. Dude, if you're a parent worth your salt... First of all, the mom's going to be like, no. And the dad's going to be like, look, dude, back off, okay? We don't have to get into this right now. Back off, right? Because that's your child. You're going to promote, you're going to protect it. You don't want the guy saying, oh, give me the baby, give me the baby. But they don't. They let Simeon take the child. Why? Well, maybe his reputation precedes him. Maybe they know about Simeon. Maybe they felt comfort from the Holy Spirit, just like the Holy Spirit prompted him to go into the temple courts. We don't know, but for whatever reason, they're okay with it. Here's what Simeon says, verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Notice real quick how Simeon describes God and himself, sovereign and servant. Simeon has humility. He sees himself in his rightful place, and he sees God in his rightful place. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, when he said this, people surrounding Simeon would have been shocked. They would have said, okay, crazy old guy, you don't know what you're talking about. Why? Because he says, hey, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, aka non-Jewish people. There's going to come a time, Simeon is basically saying, when this light that has been infused into the world would be revealed to people who are not of Israel, and they will be part of the country club. They will be in the kingdom. And Jewish people in the first century are like, no, 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 not them. Not the people that are led by a brutal dictator named Caesar who thinks he's God. Not the people that have crucified my family and brethren. Not the people who have come and mistreated our individuals, mistreated our women. Not the people who have taken over our land. Not the people who take attacks from us that we don't agree with. Not them. And little did they know, Jesus is like, God's like, yeah, them, them. Kind of like what Paul says in Romans 1 through 3 when he says, basically, the Gentiles are messed up, and and you who are Jewish, you're messed up. Chapter 3, everybody's messed up. We all need Jesus. But Simeon's not done yet. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I would too. Nobody has ever taken my children and said that about them. In verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of of the hearts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. In other words, Mary, eventually, she doesn't know this, but one day she's going to be standing at the foot of the cross and she's going to see her son that she gave birth to, that she brought to the temple, the light of the world being murdered in front of her by by the government, a sanctioned murder. 
and she's not going to be able to do anything. I can't imagine what that must feel like as a parent and especially as a mother to feel that powerless. You see, I, I love Simeon right here, and, and later on we learn about Anna. We have two witnesses who are testifying to who Jesus is. And there's just so much hope and conviction, grace and truth, compassion and conviction. Mine eyes have seen your salvation, a sight for the nations, for the Gentiles, for the Jewish people. You've kept your promise. He's going to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. But Mary, he's going to pierce your own heart too. There's a sense in which this whole passage is infused with grace and truth. And that, my friends, is how we must live. Of how we love people who are different from us. You see, it says in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17, that Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth at the same time. And you see that over and over again throughout the Gospels, throughout the stories about Jesus. But here's the deal. You might be thinking, he's God. He's kind of got a corner market on the deal, right? I mean, you know, grace and truth. Because all of us in here, we lean to one side or the other. Some of you are all about the grace or the mercy or the love. And others of you, you're all about the truth or the principles or the conviction. And I'm going to make a statement here, and it may offend you, and I'm sorry if it does. I offend myself. My wife doesn't agree with 90% of what I say. I still think I'm right, but I don't tell her that. I just let that be my own secret with myself. But here's the deal. If you side, if you take sides between grace and truth, you're weak and you're flimsy and you're immature. That's unchristlike. If the Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, what right do we have to take sides between the two. We're taking liberties that we don't have. You see, when you take sides between grace and truth, we are not living out the principles of the light of the world that was infused of Jesus. We're like, it's like holding a rubber band by one side when you say you're all about the grace but no truth. And you know these people, the grace people. We like, we love them, but they're annoying, right? And all of you who are more on the true side, you're like, oh, yeah. Because these are the people on social media that will send you little messages or write or posts or whatever saying, God is love. God loves you. God loves everybody. They don't want to talk about sin. We'll just sweep everything underneath the rug. And like their version of God is a cross between Buddy the Elf and Olaf. <laughs> like if, if this is you, you're like my children when we play Monopoly. Rules, merely a suggestion. <laughs> Until you start losing then you operate by the rules and you can make new ones, apparently. But you don't feel left out. Truth people, we love you, but you are really annoying. Okay, you know exactly who, who you are right now. Do not look at the person next to you, just all eyes up here. These are the people that know a lot about the Bible. They want you to know that they know a lot about the Bible. These are the people that in conversations in small groups, you know, they, they, they believe that they exist to correct you. Don't you love it when somebody corrects you? You're like, yeah, I think, uh, you know, when, when, you know, Paul says that in Philippians, they're like, no, that was Colossians. Okay, well, you know, Moses, when he, you know, this happened in Numbers, no, that's Exodus. You're like, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. <laughs> I love to be corrected. I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. If, if this is you, you're like my wife. Before we play Monopoly, she's like, now let's all read the rules before we play Monopoly because rules control the fun. Rules make fun more fun. And I'm like, wow, I'm having so much fun. I may have to sit out the game because one can only have so much fun in one day. But if you take sides between grace and truth, you're immature. There's no power there. If you're just all about the truth or all about the grace. So where's the power lie? The power lies in the tension of the two when you stand for grace and truth. And this tension has a name. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension of grace and truth that we feel. What Simeon was communicating in this passage was love. Of how God loves people and himself. Jesus and individuals. The Gentiles and Israel. You and me, grace and truth. Jesus lived it out. And you don't like this tension, right? And you feel this tension. You're like, 
my friend keeps on making this decision, but God's word says this, and, the, and, and you know, my family member is making this decision over here, but Jesus says this, and I'm struggling with this, but Peter and Paul, you know, they say this over here, and you feel this tension, you don't know what to do, and the reason why we take sides is because it takes no effort on your part to go back to your muscle habit and be what you're about. It takes all the faith in the world in God to stretch over to the truth side if you're naturally about the grace, or to stretch over to the grace side if you're naturally about the truth. And I tell people all the time, if you don't like what I'm saying, you might want to, like, rethink being a Christian, bro. Like, seriously. Like, we have absolutes that we believe in, right? We believe that God is real. Jesus came. He resurrected physically. The Bible is inspired. Yes. But we also have a lot of tension. I always have people that doubt this. Really? We believe in one God but the Trinity? Hello. You ever try to explain the Trinity to someone that, doesn't, that is not a Christian? That's fun. Okay, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that God inspired the Bible but used people to write it. We believe that we should love God and love people, that God is in charge but gives us free will, that death and evil were defeated at the cross and the resurrection, not yet destroyed. You can be a good preacher and still have hair. (laughs) Come on. There's tension all throughout our faith. So why do we run from the tension of grace and truth? I'll tell you exactly why. Because grace and truth always have to do with our relationships. And you are more emotionally attached to people than you are to other doctrines. Like, I'm willing to bet that you have never stayed up all night worrying about how Jesus is fully God and fully human. If you have, there will be people up here afterwards you can pray with. But I'm willing to bet that you have stayed up all night worrying about somebody you love. Somebody who was taken from you before their time. The loss of a relationship, Right? worrying about a decision that somebody has made. And we don't like the pain of emotional attachment, so we run to the other side. And that's how we hurt people. Who do you need to live with in tension in your life this Christmas? The the tension of grace and truth, who is it that you need to live with? Let me tell you about the tension in my life that I, the people in my life that I live in tension with. It's my mom and my dad. When I was two years old, they both uh, were professors at the University of Missouri, Missouri Columbia teaching philosophy, uh, English, English literature, and they divorced, and both of them went into same-sex relationships. My dad never had one partner. He had several friends. He stayed in Columbia. My mom moved to Kansas City with her new partner named Vera. They were together for 22 years until Vera died of cancer. Vera was a psychologist my mom went to work at, the, at UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I was raised my whole childhood in the LGBTQ community in Kansas City. And, and my, my parents were activists as well. My mom and her partner joined the local board of directors for GLAAD. They took me with them when I was in preschool and elementary age to bars and camps and house parties and, and like campouts and clubs and pride parades. I remember this one pride parade I marched in when I was in elementary school. At the end of it, there were all these quote-unquote Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, turn or burn, no room for you. And when people from my mom's parade would go try to talk to them, they would get sprayed with water and urine saying, this is what Jesus thinks of you. I saw families being ignored. I saw young men dying of AIDS in the 1980s being ignored by their Christian families because they were taking a stand. No, you're not taking a stand, and you'll have to answer for that one day, for your lack of compassion. Because when you become a Christian, you do not get to be unloving. You lose that right. You lose the right to gossip. You lose the right to be racist. You lose the right to be bitter and unforgiving. You lose the right to be grumpy. You lose the right to treat people in horrible ways and to not be kind. You don't get those rights when you follow Jesus. And so, I would ask my mom, why are they acting like this? And she would say, Caleb, they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. If you are not like them, they will not like you. And I was like, I never want to be a Christian, because here's my thinking. If Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus Christ is. 
And so, you know, by the time I got to be in high school, my life was out of control. I was sneaking out at night, partying, getting drunk. My, my hair was down to here. Since then, the Lord removeth and addeth other places. Wow, I didn't realize that was funny. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And, and so I got invited by a high schooler when I was 16 to go to a Bible study that he led for other high schoolers. And I thought this is going to be perfect. I'm going to go and be a, a ninja Christian, a pretend Christian, and uh, dismantle their faith. And obviously that turned out real well, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> I had never really cracked a Bible. I grabbed one of my dad's old dusty Bibles and went to the house, and at the age of 16, I had never stepped foot in any kind of a conservative Christian household before, and if, and if what I'm getting ready to say describes your house, just understand I'm not talking about, like, your house. If your house looks like this, I think it's great. I'm just telling you how it looked to me, who had never been in a Christian household before. Like, these people had every single item from the local Christian bookstore, Bible bookstore that you could imagine in their house. It looked like a Bible bookstore threw up in their living room. <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I walked in, they had the potpourri smell. You know exactly what that some Bible bookstores have. You're like, wow, that's refreshing. They had Christian breath mints by the door. Do you guys know we have our own breath mints? Like, I didn't know this, people. They're called testaments. Yeah, some of you get it, some of you don't. You know, just Google it later, you'll get it, okay? I don't ever recommend trying them unless you want to see what cyanide and peppermint taste like combined together. <laughs> they had the Bible bookstore paintings on the wall, the framed ones, with sheep and lions, and I looked at them. I was looking at my friend, and I was like, why do these people have framed pictures of animals they don't own hanging on their wall with Bible verses? I was like, this is creepy. And then, to make matters even creepier, my friend comes up from the basement and says, oh, we're just down in the basement having our study. Please join us. I'm like, oh, this is the beginning of a horror movie. <laughs> Go downstairs, sacrifice a live chicken, and everybody's gathered in a circle, supposed to be reading from 1 Corinthians, and I can't find 1 Corinthians because I'm a moron. And so I read a verse from 1 Chronicles about some dude getting impaled. Um, <laughs> They said, where are you? I said, well, I'm in First Chronicles. They're like, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I said, oh, is there a new one? <laughs> like, I had no idea there was updated 2.0. Like, but the more that I kept on going, here's what I learned. That Jesus was not like the people ignoring their children or on, the hot, or on the street corners or the people that beat up my mom's friends for their relationships. That Jesus had very deep theological convictions, and he had very real expectations for how people should live their lives. But here's the other thing. Jesus also, and understand this, had personal relationships with people who were nothing like him. The marginalized, the outcasts, the people that the religious elite of his day would not have anything to do with. And I love what Andy Stanley says in North Point Church. He says, the people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back. And I was like, I can get on board with that. I don't want the sheep picture but I can get on board with Jesus. And to this day, I still don't have a sheep picture in my house. And so I started studying what the Bible had to say about sexuality and gender and relationships. And I came to two conclusions that I still hold today. You may agree with one and not like the other, or you may not like both, or you might like both. Here's what I came to. Number one, the truth side, that I believe that God designed sex to be expressed in marriage between one man and one woman. And any expression of sex outside of that design is not part of his intention. That is my personal belief. But then I also came to this belief, that a theological conviction is never a catalyst to devalue another human being. That what you believe about Scripture should drive you to love people more, not less. Our differences with one another should drive us to each other, not from each other. How's that go together? It's that tension of grace and truth. And then I, I felt like I, you know, wanted to be a minister, and then I woke up one morning, felt like I was a Christian at the age of 16. I called my friend Greg. I'd been going to his church, for, uh, his dad's church, his dad preached at Forum Christian Church in Columbia, Missouri, and I called Greg. He was 16 like me, and I said, hey, Greg, I think I've turned Christian. <laughs> what do I do? And he said, well, 
let's go eat Chinese food, and then I'll baptize you. I'm like, really? He's like, oh, yeah, it's in Acts 2.38. I can't find the Chinese food there, but okay. (laughs) Pretty sure in Acts 2, they didn't lay out the pork out there for everybody to eat right after the baptism, the orange pork. And, And yet, we did that, and I was so nervous to tell my parents because I had to come out to my three activist gay parents as a Christian who changed his view on sexuality and wanted to be a minister. And they kicked me out of the house. How did that happen? Why? Because you and I naturally fear what we don't understand. Real quick, I want to give you some principles here. Number one is this. Don't allow the fear of some to determine the value of many. Don't allow the fear of some people to determine the value of many people. And in Luke chapter 2, the, 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 the people listen to me, and they would not have liked what he said about the Gentiles. We don't want them in here. They're going to mess up what we got going on in here. What does Simeon say? Simeon's like, no, this is what God says. What does Jesus do? Jesus breaks taboo time and time again. When you allow fear to control you, you will make horrible decisions. You will end up doing things that you never thought you could do. It's like one of my mentors said. He's short, ugly, um, big ears. He's green. His name is Yoda. He says that fear is a path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Fear is not bad in and of itself, but if fear determines your relationships and determines the decisions of your life, you will end up hurting people, right? Like fear, again, fear is not a bad thing. It's a great companion. It's a horrible leader. You need fear. If you're hiking during the summer and you see a rattlesnake, be afraid. Do not pick it up and say, I'm going to keep this as a pet and, and name it Sally, and I'm going to put a pink collar on it, okay? And I'm going to cuddle it and everything. No, you'll be dead. You should be afraid, okay? But when you start allowing fear to determine your relationships, you will end up hurting people. And I end up staying with different friends as I was, as, as after my parents kicked me out. Eventually, they let, they let me back in. I went to Bible college in southern Missouri, And it was there that I learned the second principle right here of how we can live in this tension of grace and truth. Second principle up on the screen, please. That we need to value God's words over trends and traditions. Okay? Societal trends will always change. Traditions of people will come and go. But what God says, his words, especially as written in the New Testament, they are what we must follow. Everything in the Bible is equally inspired. Not everything is equally applicable. We need to follow God's words and value them over trends and traditions. So I went to Bible college, ended up preaching at several different churches. First church I ever preached at, six people in the church. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start like a youth group for (laughs) 40-year-olds. The second church I preached at was in the middle of Missouri, In a town of 50, we had 25 of them in our church. We were the largest church per capita in the world at that time. (laughs) And for 18 months, I preached on grace and truth and love and compassion. And then I invited my mom to come to church with me. And then the next Sunday, she must not have liked the sermon because she didn't return. But there were two elders waiting for me on the doorstep. They said, Caleb, we want to talk to you. I said, sure. And they said, if you want to keep preaching in this church, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I looked at them, I said, oh, okay, well, I, I don't like you, so I quit. Like right now. And they said, oh, no, you can't quit. We need you to preach. I said, oh, you don't want that. Like not after this conversation. If this is going to be my last sermon, like, I'm just warning you. They're like, no, we need a sermon. I'm like, oh, you're going to get one. So I went up there and took the sermon. I'd written it. It was on fasting, ripped it up. Who cares about fasting anyway? Got up there. (laughs) And I preached a sermon on grace and truth. 
and I walked out of there and I said, God, if you let me be in a church, I want to be in a church filled with messy, broken people who are questioning their sexuality, people who have major issues in their family, people who are depressed, people who are broke, people who are addicted, people who are homeless, people who are in gangs, people who are cutting, people who have had abortions, people who have been through how many divorces, people who do not get along with their children, people who can't hold down a job, people who think they're perfect even though they're not, people who have too much money, people who think that Nickelback is a good band. That's what I want in the church, okay? Because that's what the church is, people. The church is a beautiful mosaic of messy, broken lives that God unites together to glorify himself. He is not glorified in our performance. He is glorified in our surrender to him. And so I learned that God's words are just as much about how he loves people as they are anything else. And then I, I went to Los Angeles for 11 years, got married where she could meet my wife. She's beautiful, tall, tanned. Um, she is a muy caliente Latina. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Uncle Fester, Dr. Evil, and Gru. I mean, this is... <laughs> this is her eye candy she wakes up to every morning. She is a lucky lady. After 11 years at Shepherd Church, we moved out to Dallas, Texas to preach at a church for three and a half years because everybody's got to live in purgatory at least once. <laughs> oh, it's a hostile place. There's more humidity there. There's Mark Cuban and Jerry Jones. This is, again, I was expecting agreement. This troubles me, Josh. <laughs> Jerry Jones. Look at one person saved. Okay. And while I was there, my parents separately of one another, because my mom's partner had died from cancer, they moved down to Dallas, Texas to be close to our family. They ended up attending the church that I was preaching at, even though they knew what I believed. In the summer of 2013, before we moved back, my mom and dad separately of one another gave their lives to Jesus Christ at the ages of 69 and 70. Okay, which taught me this third principle of how you can live in the tension of grace and truth. Okay, that acceptance is commanded, but agreement is optional. You must accept people. You do not have to agree with them. When I say acceptance, let me define this. Acceptance is about loving people for who they are, where they at, no matter what they've done, no matter where they're from, no matter what their politics are, no matter what their beliefs are, you love them. That does not mean you have to agree with every decision they make, belief they hold, or conviction they ascribe to. True love is built on acceptance. Fake love, cheap love, is built on agreement. Acceptance implies disagreement. How did that happen? How do my parents come to believe in Jesus? You know, are they in same-sex relationships right now? No. Do they love Jesus? Yes. Do they believe everything I believe? No. My mom is dying of cancer. My dad has dementia. They go to church when they can. How's all this go together? I don't know. God never called me to figure out the tension. He called me to live in it. Very last thing I'll say is this. If you are stuck and you don't know this Christmas how to live in this tension of grace and truth, you've done everything you've known to do, you've called your your small group leader, your shepherd, you've called Josh at three in the morning. He loves to get phone calls at three in the morning, by the way. You, you've, you've called the church staff. You have, you have done everything you can. You don't know how to live in this tension of grace and truth this Christmas with this individual that is driving you crazy, but you know you need to love. I want you to ask yourself this question right here. What am I willing to do to keep and build influence with you fill in the blank. What am I willing to do to keep and build influence with my son, my granddaughter, my nephew, my coworker? What am I willing to do to build influence with the person I don't agree with, but the person I know is, is, is going to a Christless eternity? Depending on whose name is in that blank, 
you'll probably be willing to do just about anything except sin. How far did God go to gain influence with you? He killed his own son. He allowed his own son to die. It's a lot further than any of us could go, but all of us have another step we can take towards loving somebody else who is different from us, to live in the tension of grace and truth because it's all about influence. You want to sow those relational investments so that you can have influence to speak into somebody's life when it matters the most. Because if you don't have influence, they will go somewhere else for influence and you probably will not like where they go. And that's on you, not them. What are you willing to do this Christmas? To keep and to build influence with the person you love. If our prayer counselors and elders and shepherds can get into place, we're just going to have a time. If you feel right now, if you feel like God is putting something on your heart, if somebody invited you to church today and you haven't been in a while and you found out that you didn't burst into flames and the roof didn't fall down, and you want to know more about Jesus, come up here and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. If you've never been baptized before, and you've been on the fence. You're like, yeah, but I'm not ready yet. You never will be. But if you believe in Jesus, you can build on that the rest of your life. The rest of us are. If you're somebody and you feel like you need to repent for the way you've treated somebody you've disagreed with, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, I want to invite you to come forward. And you don't have to give all the gory details. You just have to say, I need to ask God for forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And if you just have been hurt by Christians and you braved your way back this morning, thank you. If you don't want to come forward, you don't have to, but if you do, let us pray for you for that, for healing. Whatever it is that is befalling you this morning. Go ahead and stand. And I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to sing, and that'll be your opportunity to come forward and to respond to whatever it is that God is doing in your heart. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for Simeon. Thank you for the message that he has given us. And I pray, Lord, that as we go throughout our day today, that we would live and love in grace and truth. I pray that if you are stirring something in us to come forward, to request prayer for somebody that we need to love better, that we need to ask forgiveness for how we treated them. If we need to find out more about Jesus, if we just need prayer for healing for what somebody has done to us, I pray that we would come forward during this time. Lord, I love you. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.